Dhruv, welcome to the Bitcoin Source. Can we start things off by having you introduce yourself to the world and to the audience? Thanks, Dario. I really appreciate uh, you inviting me on here. Um, my name is Drew Fansel. I'm one of the co-founders and the chief science officer at Unchained Capital. Uh, I think we're best known for our uh, Bitcoin uh, uh, native financial services, for our collaborative custody, uh, for a lot of our educational material that we put out into the community around Bitcoin and self-custody and keys and wallets. Um, we're also very really well known, I think, for a colleague, uh, Parker Lewis, uh, his, uh, his series of gradually even settling in articles are like an incredible introduction to, I think, Bitcoin on first principles and why it's important and relevant and unstoppable ultimately today. Um, and then certainly to a degree, I've written a bunch of stuff out there on space and Bitcoin in the future and various other ideas that, that I think also have, uh, have been pretty impactful in, in, their own, in their own small ways. Uh, amongst a few dedicated space nerds, perhaps like yourself. Yes, most definitely. Thank you for that introduction, Drew. And, you know, I try not to um, pontificate on how instrumental this interview is for me just for being a Bitcoiner, you know, being kind of somewhat of a nerd and loving space and loving just the self-custody model of Bitcoin. But the first question that I really want to get into is a question that I usually ask all my guests on the show, which is, you know, what inspired you? Where did you source your Bitcoin knowledge, whether it was books, courses, or even people in the ecosystem when you first got orange pilled into this digital asset? It. For me, it wasn't a very fast process. Um, maybe that's me. Maybe that's the time at which it was happening. It took months and I'd say years to like totally orange pill myself, um, at least to the degree that I, I feel like I am today. Part of me believes that maybe it's easier a little bit now. Um, if you're coming to Bitcoin these days, there's so many more resources, um, so much better um, material out there. Uh, but I think still some of the early work still really stands up. Um, so I would say for me, uh, the beginning uh, was more from more from, more from the technology. Like I got, I, I read Satoshi's white paper very early, and I thought it was really brilliant. And uh, you know, coming from my background of physics and distributed systems and computer science and stuff, like the technology was really cool. Um, I thought it was a little pointless because I didn't really understand money very well. And so I think for me. In terms of my own orange pilling, I didn't need much orange orange pilling to think the blockchain was an interesting, if a little um, pointless. Um, I, I thought it was fascinating, maybe if a little pointless, um, but I needed a lot more orange pilling on concepts like, like why might a finite supply limit, for example, be a good idea? You know, not really an, um, an issue that really motivated me when I was first learning or thinking about Bitcoin, um, or for example, why like being um, Turing complete. And things like that um, to build the world computer, so to speak, right? In the blockchain, the way that Ethereum has tried to do, like why that is a bad idea. I had to do a lot of reading to kind of get to those places. Um, and I think because it was happening for me in kind of this like 2013 to 16 to, to 20 kind of phase of, of, of really kind of becoming really focused on on Bitcoin and Bitcoin only, um, there was a lot of things in that in that time frame that I read. Um, I think some of the most impactful articles that I can recall. Are um, there's a really famous one, the bullish case for Bitcoin by Vijay Boyapati, which is just like very well articulated um, and really goes through a lot of the fundamental reasons why Bitcoin, in particular, beyond other cryptocurrencies, would be so impactful. I, I mentioned my, my colleague Parker previously. Um, he one of his essays in the Graduate and Suddenly series, I think, made a big, big impact on me in particular. It was about um, how money's not really a hallucination, like that phrase which I had used. Up until that point, the money is a shared hallucination. Anything can be money. It's a very like sapiens, maybe kind of attitude towards money. 
Um, you talked about how that's not really true, that money has certain characteristics that you want it to have and that things will have can be better or worse at having those characteristics. You can't, can't hallucinate moneyness into just any damn thing. Um, and he, of course, said a lot more, but that was pretty impactful. Changed my own view on that and helped me to realize that um, not any blockchain that happens to be on top, even if it is on top, is necessarily good money. That, uh, on some sense, it's moneyness takes can be hidden sometimes, and it might take the market a little while to figure it out. But eventually, it kind of wins. It's the more, it's the the more valuable money is always always win. Um, so that was pretty impactful. Um, I would say also there's a, a bunch of uh, articles around kind of proof of stake for me uh, around like why that was. I initially supported that right as a Bitcoiner um, coming in. I initially held Ethereum. I had bought some Ethereum early on. <clears throat> My company actually supported Ethereum products for a while in the early days. I can talk more about that if you're interested. Um, and I think the two things that, of course, drew me to Ethereum, like a lot of people, were the idea of being able to compute anything you want on there, um, and then the idea of proof of stake, somehow being better than proof of work for the environment or climate change or just efficiency or whatever reasons. Um, and, and, and for the security angle, at least, I think I got deprogrammed very quickly by myself because I sort of realized, like, the more complicated the thing is, the, the shittier it is to run and operate. I experienced that firsthand trying to run Ethereum code at Unchained or trying to run Ethereum nodes and, and stuff at Unchained. Um, on the point of proof of stake, an article that really influenced me was actually by Arvind Narayan. I'm forgetting which article now. It might have even just been a tweet thread. But it was just about how, how difficult randomness is to make, like really, really unpredictable randomness. And that algorithms which act as random number generators are often, of course, pseudo-random number generators. They're deterministic, um, which doesn't make them suitable for when we want true randomness, the kind that adversaries are going to rely upon to protect themselves from each other. Um, and in a distributed context, it's very, very hard to generate distributed random numbers. Um, there's some trivial suggestions that I think people always think about, like, well, why don't you just measure atmospheric noise or a radioactive particle? Like, there, nature does provide some true sources of randomness, as far as we currently think, in, at least in physics. But, but it's hard to take, you know, an atom decaying in a laboratory in one place and then put it put that information out to everybody in the network in a trustless way, right? Maybe if it's your atom in your laboratory, okay, that could be a trustless random number generator that, that, that you can believe in. But a shared random, or shared random, a shared random number generator amongst a lot of people is very, very hard to build um, without being gameable. Um, there are some classic attacks where end people can indeed collude to find the, a random number that is really random and provably none of them could individually have affected, but you have these situations where the last person of the end to participate in the round actually knows the number before everybody else in the round will know it. So in some cases that doesn't matter, it's not a big deal, but in cases of you know choosing the selectorate that, that picks blocks, right, that, that, that is in charge of consensus, um, you can imagine how small advantages like that can really be um, gamified or, or gamed to create uh, bigger advantages so it just struck me that like wow proof of work is just a fucking really good random number generator um if, if nothing else can be said about it like it's a beautifully elegant and simple solution to the how does a distributed group of people generate a random number and then from, from that, that sort of started to peel back a lot of my thinking about why why proof of stake was either going to work or not going to work and all those things um and then i, I will say honestly to a small degree uh, writing those Bitcoin astronomy pieces where I had to think about how Bitcoin would evolve with um, the future of humankind um, and, and help me realize that maybe Bitcoin has exactly the right structures to help humanity in the far future, which suggests that maybe it's a really good choice for, for right now. So in a small way, I think even thinking through those thoughts um, helped convince me that Bitcoin was a pretty powerful um, 
solution. And so I think at that point, I, I think I could say I was sufficiently orange pilled. I no longer, the company was no longer supporting Ethereum. I had sold all of mine. Um, I was no longer interested or following what was happening in that world, really just focused in on Bitcoin. Yes, that's, that's brilliant. And, you know, I think that a lot of Bitcoiners, a lot of people coming into this ecosystem, um, initially they're kind of, um, you know, sleepwalking into alternative coins just because they feel like they missed the train or they're not, you know, financially or technically savvy, savvy enough to figure out what is this proof of work protocol? Why is there only 21 million? They're, they find every excuse as to why they shouldn't just onboard into Bitcoin. And I love the fact that you kind of said that, you know, you were transparent and you said that like you kind of had a proof of stake model early in the game. And after you did some studying, like Michael Siller always talks about having a hundred hours of study in Bitcoin before you truly understand what this thing is in the midst of these 17,000 other crypto things. Right. So thank you, Drew, for kind of like really elucidating and breaking down, you know, the fight that we go through as Bitcoiners or just people in the blockchain cryptocurrency industry of deciding like, what is the best investment for me? Um, why am I doing this? And why is it important to not only me, but to my community? So thank you for that. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm hopefully even just mentioning those articles can help at least one person. But there's a lot of people now writing about all these ideas. I think if you're willing to do the research, you, you should be able to come to the conclusion that Bitcoin at least is valuable to hold. Maybe it's a bit more radical to say nothing else is really valuable, because I think the truth is that's not quite a fair statement. Uh, the altcoins are extremely valuable and you can make a lot of profit from them if you time things well, if, you, if you're a good trader, if you're able to pick the other guy's pocket effectively in the market. Um, I'm not good at those things. And so for me, they're just a dead end. Um, but I, I can't deny that for those who are good at those things, there's a lot of money to be made, maybe a lot of Bitcoin to be made from working in those areas. Um, I think to me, that just cautions most, most new entrants that if you're not one of those kinds of sharkish folks who, are, who have that skill set of being a really, really excellent trader, being able to ignore your emotions and just read the markets well, um, maybe pick the easy thing, which is just the, to buy the Bitcoin and to DCA and uh, take your time. About yes, it. most definitely. I couldn't agree with that more. And Drew, if you know, you know, I want to talk about your company, Unchained Capital, which I think is just um, a brilliant company. And, you know, you guys have had, you know, a couple different approaches to financial services over the years, especially when it comes to digital assets. And my question to you is, is, um, you know, what made Unchained pivot from, you know, doing collateralized loans, Bitcoin loans into just doing collaborative custody um, as a business model? Yeah, that's a really uh, great question. Thanks for, thanks for knowing a lot about the history of our business. I think we're better known um, in a lot of quarters for our collaborative custody vaulting solutions to help keep Bitcoin safe, which is in some ways a financial product. But um, of course, our, our one of the, the larger financial products lines that we, we offer currently is our collateralized lending product. So very much a financial service. Um, that chronologically was actually the first product we launched, as you mentioned, and, and we only later launched the more collaborative custody vault structures. Um, and the reason was uh, when we were starting the business around 2016 or so, we really asked ourselves and other Bitcoiners, um, well, maybe I should back up a step even. Um, we were exploring a hypothesis at that time that number one, we really just wanted to get into Bitcoin. I think we'd, we'd admitted to ourselves that that was like what we wanted to do. We felt Bitcoin was like the place to be. Um, I wasn't even fully orange pilled yet. I think maybe I was Bitcoin, blockchain, crypto, but clearly Bitcoin. So that's where we started. Um, and then we didn't know what to build in Bitcoin to start out with. We There were already things like wallets and, heart, and um, to a degree, hardware wallets. And Coinbase existed. Bitco existed. There were a bunch of, there were a lot of services out there to buy and sell Bitcoin and to hold it. 
But it was our conjecture that financial services were underdeveloped in Bitcoin um, beyond trading. So uh, being able to borrow against your Bitcoin, um, being able to get insurance on it, do other kinds of things with Bitcoin, long, long-term big, big brain ideas. It's, those things weren't around. Um, and it struck us that if Bitcoin really is going to be a new kind of money, of course, those things have to get built. We might as well be the folks to build it. And I think we took a real hard look at Bitcoin because uh, we, and, and then how do we get to collateralized lending? We got to collateralized lending because we <clears throat> suspected that a lot of folks held Bitcoin for a long period of time without getting much value from it. Um, and then we measured that in our HODL wave chart, um, which is another you know piece of work that the Unchained team is well known for. Um, that chart, I think we released it sometime around 2018 more publicly. We had made it for the first time originally in 2016. And it helped us see that even at that time, like some 40 to 50% of all Bitcoin had just been sitting there for more than a year. So we knew that trading wasn't accessing that coin. Uh, presumably that coin wasn't being traded anywhere. It was just being held by people. And so what products can you sell to Bitcoiners who are just holding Bitcoin for the long term? Well, you can sell them alone because it's it's like holding it, but you don't have to actually sell it, right? It's collateralizing it. Um, there were other ideas, too, that we toyed with, but that one seemed to have the most resonance and traction with actual clients. We talked to Bitcoiners. We said, well, what would you be interested in? Would you, would you take this loan? Like, are there any instances where you wish you could have had this, you know, flexibility or freedom, right? Because I think one thing that um, wealthy people enjoy is they have a lot of flexibility and freedom around their assets. It's, there are many tools and services that help you move assets from category to category in tax-advantaged or otherwise ways. Um, there's a lot of liquidity available. There's a lot of credit. Um, and I know that changes seasonally with the markets and all that, but it's a very robust and large ecosystem. And, of course, none of that existed in Bitcoin. So we decided to start there. The reason we did not start with custody was because we felt that there already existed custodial products. We didn't feel like we could just launch a thing and then certainly start charging people for something that folks were more or less doing for free um, uh, at places like Coinbase and, and, and others. Um, so we kind of went with the, the collateralized lending model. And then in building this out, you know, we really needed to add, we sort of kept asking ourselves about trust. Like, why would a Bitcoiner, this kind of person who's just been sitting on Bitcoin for years, because at this point, by the way, we had, you know, my co-founder Joe and I, our current CEO, we, we also were Bitcoin or becoming Bitcoiners, we held Bitcoin certainly, and we'd held it for like three years. And we hadn't done anything with it. It had just been sitting there. Um, so we sort of knew that we were part of that pattern. And so we, we sort of um, asked ourselves, well, that's because our conjecture is that Bitcoin will be really valuable one day. And so then we sort of, and also things like Bitfinex had already happened or were contemporaneously happening. Mt. Gox, of course, had happened many years before. So we knew this idea of just giving your Bitcoin to somebody else is like a very uh, dangerous choice. And thinking about our market, early Bitcoiners who potentially had a good amount of Bitcoin, enough where they would actually want to collateralize it, um, it struck us as that there just must be, they're a very paranoid, untrusting group of people. And the, the, the minimum barrier to entry um, for any kind of collateralized lending product has to be something that it just set, is so obvious about how it can't go wrong, right? So it should be multi-sig, and it should be non-rehypothecated it should be on the blockchain and there should, it should be everything should be super transparent like that was our decision and our conceit around how we had to launch this product and so we wound up launching a product with all those features um it was a collateralized lending product multi-sig unchained held all the keys it wasn't collaborative quite yet but it was multi-sig and you could see the address that you used for your loan collateral and once your utxos have been deposited there you knew that they weren't moving because you can monitor them with any you know independent tools of your own of course, uh, I think we were actually one of the first, uh, we were the first uh, Bitcoin-backed uh, lender in the United States. So we launched this product sometime around 2017. Um, and uh, what's interesting is in 2018, you sort of had this follow-on wave of folks like BlockFi and 
Salt, if folks even remember that company um, that came out. And it turns out we're just completely wrong about everything um, when it comes to collateral that you can just tell people, hey, 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 why don't you just give me your Bitcoin and trust me? And it turns out most people will do that. Um, and that, that that shocked me when when companies with BlockFi's business model um, launched and had significant uptake. I had to admit that maybe I didn't know or understand Bitcoiners as well as I thought I did, or maybe the Bitcoiners I was talking to were very different than the average Bitcoin person. Maybe there's a big gap between the Bitcoiner and the Bitcoin owner. I don't know. Um, I am glad, though, that Unchained made the investment in multi-sig and, you know, transparency and non-rehypothecation early because ultimately what happened is this is a long roundabout answer to your question dadu is um the market collapsed around 2018 or so if if folks can remember right there was a, a time when bitcoin was you know merely uh uh was a um it was one of my first um, bear markets as an entrepreneur. I had experienced them before as just a Bitcoin holder, but this was the first time like, when my business and my profession depended on Bitcoin that the market was tanking. And I think we had to take real stock of like where the company is going. And what I could say is, well, we tried out a Bitcoin lending model. We had some initial success. You know, We'd raised some capital. We had maybe originated a million dollars in loans or something similar by that age, by that time. Um, the product seemed like pretty good. Um, but we hadn't knocked it out of the park yet, and there were lots of competitors showing up, many of whom had very quickly eclipsed us in terms of like the size of their loan book because they didn't have to wait to build all this complicated stuff. They just got a Coinbase account and started saying, hey, send me your Bitcoin and I'll give you dollars. Um, they didn't build out any tech. Um, and so I, I sort of looked at it, and I remember Joe and I and our product teams and, and someone sort of realizing that, look, anybody, it seems, can just do Bitcoin lending. That's not the hard part. The hard part of the, the most valuable part of what we've built here is this engine that like does multi-sig with keys inside of it and all these like this is the this is the valuable part of what we've built. And so we decided to double down um, because we I think we'd had a vision for collaborative custody. We just hadn't implemented it fully because we wanted to test the loan hypothesis first and that wasn't required in order to, to do that. But now that the market was a little bit more crowded and it felt like it was in a bear, it was time to innovate. And so we decided we'll double down on the collaborative, uh, on adding collaborative features to our custodial technology, and we'll launch a new product, a vault product, where you can actually have a majority of the keys instead of Unchained having a majority of the keys, which is where we started um, in our lending program. Um, and I I'm really happy we made that choice, right? That choice was made, I wouldn't say out of desperation, but out of a, a cool analysis of our strengths relative to other companies in the market. Folks like at BlockFi were better fundraisers, had already made more noise, had more marketing dollars to spend perhaps than we did at that same moment in time, um, but they had no technology and they had didn't did not seem to understand the, the motivating, um, the, the motivations of long-term Bitcoin investors. Whereas I think we, it turns out now years later demonstrably did. Um, and so, we were in a place to make the investment because we had over-calibrated on how paranoid Bitcoiners are um, and already built out all this tech. Um, in a crowded market, we realized that's our strength. Let's double down on it. And sure enough, by the following year, we were able to launch a, uh, um, I won't say the first, I believe Casa was also in market by then. But we sort of joined now in this very new niche of collaborative custody, um, a phrase I think, uh, I historically, I think I named it on Stefan Levera's podcast. So it's cool that that idea like sort of started to be out there. I think it still took a couple years um, for you know 
CASA and our, us to both grow to this kind of the size that we have, where and collaborative custody is no longer, I think, a minority, insignificant, weird niche practice is actually a pretty pluralistic major practice um, in Bitcoin custody now. And I'm very proud that Unchained could be part of that, that journey. Yes. And there was, there's so much to unpack there. Um, you know, when I first got into Bitcoin and you really started to really understand what it was, um, I had some mentors in the space. And one of my mentors always would say, it's pointless to um, spend Bitcoin for value for value when it's not ubiquitous at Ralph's or Kroger's or your local gas station. It doesn't make sense to spend something that isn't being used in a circular economy. And then when I got under the tutelage of Lamar Wilson from Black Bitcoin Billionaires, he gave out so much Bitcoin for free all the time for just being inspired by someone or um, a service or a product that somebody was giving out. And he changed my mind about Bitcoin in the sense of spending it, right? And then when I look at Unchained and I look at Casa and some of these um, self-custody models, I always think about the long term for the future, right? And it's like, you have some people in the space that are very fickle. They're very paranoid, like you said, Drew, where you'll see on Twitter, sometimes people will say, well, um, who's to say that, you know, Unchained doesn't have a backdoor or if the government squeezes them for those keys, will they give them up and relinquish them? And you have to think about all these things in your mind, but it's like, we don't have, you know, we can't tell the future. We don't know what's going to happen. But what we do know is that you're holding a key, I'm holding a key, and some other people are holding a key. So it creates it creates this like treasure hunt, right? So my question to you, Drew, and this is something I wanted to ask because I'm curious about is what happens if Unchained goes offline and can people recover their Bitcoin in an event of an emergency through the blockchain? Yeah, I mean, that's a huge concern um, for Unchained as a financial services provider as well as I think clients of Unchained consuming financial services from Unchained. Both sides want to know that if somebody screws up here, even if it's Unchained, that everyone is safe, even if that's Unchained. And what I mean by that is um, the collaborative model doesn't mean that somehow you're, you're ceding control. It means you're choosing to configure and collaborate and apportion control in a way that gives you advantages, chiefly redundancy. Um, that's one of the chief advantages of collaboration. In particular, and I'll talk about each of these scenarios uh, separately. Um, as a client, uh, if, uh, if if you you know screw up and you lose your keys somehow, Unchained is there to help you out, right? That there's a second key that Unchained was holding, and the details of this will matter on the particular products. Loans work differently than vaults, and we can talk about some of that. But Unchained's there to help you. Um, conversely, and this has never happened, um, but if Unchained were to lose our keys somehow, right? It's all hope is not lost. Um, there are pathways and tools that our clients can use to recover their own funds. Um, again, depending on the product, either by themselves or with a third party, let's say in the case of our loans. So just at the level of keys, we're protecting each other. That's important to remember. Um, now, coming back to your direct question, um, what happens if one of us is offline? Right? And this, this can be asked about all the parties as well. Right? So if the client is offline, what happens, let's say, in the context of an unchained loan? where there's an expectation for capital providers to do liquidations in the event of margin calls. Prices are going down, client you know, is freaking out or can't be reached or whatever else. And you know, we try really hard to reach our clients. We try really hard to give them tools to proactively manage their um, the health of their loan collateral um, in leading up to sort of market volatility. But you know, not everyone's able to do it. Sometimes liquidations have to happen. Um, our capital providers wouldn't feel very good at the claim that, well, we couldn't reach that client that we were collaborating with, and therefore we weren't able to cover your capital. I'm sorry, we incurred a loss. That's not acceptable. So we have to be able to recover the capital in collaboration with other parties in that loan, and that's part of the reason those parties exist. Right? The reason they exist is because we have an eventuality like this that we have to cover for. Conversely, 
Um, let's ask the question, what if Unchained were to disappear for some reason, exactly as you're asking? Now, again, details will depend on the product, but the goal is there should always be sufficient keys not held by Unchained that allow parties to directly interface with their wallets on the blockchain, as you suggest, um, and recover their funds. If you're a client in a vault, you're going to have two out of the three keys. If Unchained disappears, you don't need our key anyway. Most transactions you were signing, you were doing with just your two keys. So now create a, a new vault that it doesn't use Unchained's key since we've disappeared and move your funds into that new vault. Um, and alone, you as a client can collaborate with that third party to do kind of the same action. So mechanically, yeah, it's very much possible, and the product is designed to, of course, support that kind of usage. There's one key part here, um, maybe key's not the right phrase to use, there's one important additional piece of information that's required, and I think my colleague Phil Geiger often uses a treasure map analogy, right? If Bitcoin is the treasure, and the uh, the wallet is like the lock where, where that's the treasure is locked up in, or the box, the treasure chest. Um, and there are keys, right, which unlock the treasure chest, and maybe there's more than one required, two of three in, in the typical on-chain model. Um, there's also a treasure map, all right? There's where do you go with the keys in order to actually unlock the chest to get to the treasure of the Bitcoin inside that map is an important idea. And in single sig, which a lot of folks who are self-custodying have experienced, the map is not really as necessary. Like you, like the key sort of almost is its own map in a way. And what I mean by this is when you're in single sig, you're typically using like a bit 44 type, you know, architecture. And then there's there's a very clear way to drive down to an extended public key, which then generates your whole wallet. And you, you can do that very quickly and check for yourself. Um, in multi sig, the conventions just aren't as as well baked yet. And so when you have multiple parties collaborating in multi-sig like you do in collaborative custody, there has to be a convention as to, okay, on my key, this is the path I took before I gave you guys an extended public key to share in our in our mutual collaboration here. And then the second party said, well, on my key, I took the slightly other, other path. And these paths are going to be different because different parties are in a different number, potentially, of multi-sigs with each other. You know, Unchained is in many thousands of multi-sigs or on the planet. Our clients are typically only going to be in a couple our key signing agent partners are in some intermediate range, right? And so different partners use their key space very differently. And so the map says to everybody involved, hey, here's how you get to the treasure chest. Here are the derivation paths, in this, in, derivation paths, excuse me, in the 32 space that you need in order to, um, to actually use your keys to discover your wallet. Um, and this is important, not just to spend your coins, but to even discover the addresses associated with your wallet, this treasure map is required. Um, now, mechanically, the, the implementation of the treasure map is just a configuration file. So every product on Unchained, the vaults or loans, have a configuration file, which you can download, and you can load into you know, several open source tools, things like Caravan, which we maintain, or other tools like, I think, like Spectre or Sparrow are compatible with it um, to more or less to a degree. Um, this is really nice because this allows you to just, if you, if you care about this concern, if you're worried that Unchained might disappear, um, you've already got your keys and those are backed up and that's part of your key management. You should take this treasure map, this config file that you get from Unchained when you go to your products page, download it, go save it in a safe place, right? Put it on a USB stick, put it on multiple USB sticks, stash it in a few places. And now in addition to your keys, you have this treasure map, this config file that tells you how to use your keys. Um, again, a long-winded way of saying, with this infrastructure in place, you don't, you don't really even have to use Unchained like as a platform to engage with your holdings. Like you can think of Unchained as a platform where you set up a wallet and you have a dedicated co-signer in Unchained and potentially you might even have financial services in the form of loans. But for your vault products, you can more or less transact independently using wallets outside of Unchained and things just update inside of Unchained alongside what you're doing. So you have a lot of independence in the way that you interact with, 
with your with your wallet and with your Bitcoin. And of course, all of this is by design, right? We want to give you these powers because we are terrified that if we take away these powers from you and we take them onto ourselves for whatever reasons, that now we have to protect them. And we're a small organization. And I think really large organizations, right? Coinbase, um, other Bitcoin companies, uh, big traditional banks, the government, right? The State Department, the, the, the bloody NSA. These organizations get attacked. They get hacked. Um, they have exfiltrations. Um, how can we ever be any different? And so, you know, part of the solution to that is, well, one, use cold storage and use physical keys because physical things are easier to protect than online things. And two, don't take on the power yourself. Share it, right? Split it with the people that you are protecting, with your clients. Empower them. I, I think not only is it a security thing, it's a cool philosophy because I think every employee at Unchained knows that uh, if we piss off our clients, we don't give them good service, they can take their wallet and their keys and they can walk away with all the Bitcoin in their vault and we can't do anything about it. In fact, we gave them the tools that they need to take that very action. So it really helps focus us as a business in on, it's not our money in, in the bank that we're, that like somehow you have to beg us to get out. These are your Bitcoin that we're collaborating to protect and we have to continuously earn your, your usage of our platform by continuing to add value and be a valuable partner for you in security. Yeah, that was crazy to just think about and I, I didn't even think about it in that aspect like i'm familiar with self-custody but the way you broke that down makes perfect sense and you know this is something that i really wanted to know too which was like you know you have tiers right so like unchain has um a level of sophistication where if you have 10 grand in bitcoin or 100 grand in bitcoin there's different levels that you kind of have to use to protect those assets and you know there's bitcoiners out there that just do not trust companies holding their keys. And, you know, they tell people don't waste your money on a Bitcoin hardware wallet. And then it makes me think about like what Luke is going through with, you know, his wallet getting hacked, um, them getting access to his keys. And it makes me think about companies like Unchained, where, um, like you said, you want to kind of spread this information so that it becomes a collaborative effort where if someone, you know, God forbid, passes away, and they don't have inheritance planning, or they've never told anybody about their private keys, Unchained kind of steps in there to say, hey, like, um, granted, you know, this person had a will or something like that, where we can utilize these things to kind of help family members or loved ones get access to the Bitcoin, because who knows what the price will be um, down the road. So I'm glad that you kind of broke that down, because I think there's a lot of Bitcoiners out there that just downright do not trust, especially with the um, FTX implosion and some of the hacks that we've been seeing all last year, where they're just trying to, they're trying to find every reason to um, not say, you know, self-custody is a thing to go to. So thank you for that, Drew. No, I mean, I, I, I actually really appreciate the kind of person who will never trust anyone and always do the entire thing themselves. Um, they'll do Bitcoin D on their own, like airline or air gap computer. They'll have their own wallet. They'll have their own private key. Man, they won't even use hardware wallets, to your point. Um, I like people like that to a degree because they help keep everybody else honest. You know, like the fact that that, that there's some people still doing that means it still means it's possible, means the system has to support it. And we can't take it away. So bravo to folks like that. Um, because as you pointed out with Luke, it, it is dangerous. It is a dangerous thing to do. It's hard to do correctly. Um, uh, it's Unchained succeeds because we have a lot of people working on the problem and splitting up the burden and working on different parts of, of the stack. So everything from network security to physical security to, to you know, security design and, and, and 
there's so much to, to do there. Um, I don't want to make it sound like it's impossible, but I think it's very, very hard to do every single piece of this yourself. And, and what you need to then do is then you need to say, well, which parts reasonably can I help uh, get, get help from um, in companies? I think most people say, well, I shouldn't build my own hardware wallet or software wallet. I should just use regular software that some company made and I should use a hardware wallet product that some other company made or the same company or whatever, and they should solve that. But I think that's most people would, would admit to that. I think there's a bigger gap in saying, well, I actually need to use a collaborative custody provider like Unchained. Um, and I don't think everybody does need to use Unchained. Um, you can implement collaborative custody on your own using open source software. Just have some friends, have some family members, right? Like <clears throat> work, work, give them public keys, train them how to use treasures and ledgers or cold cards or whatever your devices are, um, and implement your own plans and implement your own inheritance protocol and do it all on your own. Great, great solution. But again, hard to do you have to it's easier to do that i think than to do everything your own at least you're relying on software and hardware wallets now from other people but you take on you still have every other burden for yourself um, where unchained really helps is coming in and taking on a lot of that right so we'll help coordinate the collaboration we'll hold a key for you we're a really really good key holder um, we do it literally professionally for you know thousands of people at a, at a global scale um, and we're doing it for years um, knock on wood without any incidents um, and we take it very seriously it's one of the, the main things that our business is responsible for is protecting our own key which participates in the collaborative quorums of our clients that's a pretty valuable service um, your your friends and family aren't probably doing as good of a job as we are so maybe consider involving us as a key as well in your quorum right um, and then finally i think to the point we were just making um, given that if you're advanced you can use a wallet that is on Unchained, that you've defined on Unchained in a collaborative custody way, you can use the same wallet on Sparrow on your laptop. You can sign the transactions there. It, it, you don't have to make Unchained the core centerpiece of your experience with your wallet. We'd like for you to. We think our product is really good. You can use financial services that way, um, but you don't have to do it that way. And we've designed it to support that kind of usage. Um, but what if you have some situation where you're collaborating with a friend or family member and they need to come in and they need to sign transactions or whatever else, like maybe they would prefer to use Unchained. It's an easier product for them. They get support um, that from the Unchained teams. Um, and it like, doesn't always have to land on you to provide that support. Um, so there's a lot of reasons why, I think even if you're a pretty sophisticated Bitcoiner, like this is a really good product for you to, to use. You don't have to trust all of your stash with it. Maybe you can keep some you know, carved on a piece of, you know, steel inside of a pipe and in, in, in your basement somewhere or whatever is the preferred solution you have. But I do think that for a lot of people, a, collab a professional collaborative custody model, professionally supported and implemented collaborative custody model is the superior model. Um, and I think over time we'll see this play out like just globally across the market. Like companies like Unchained will pop up in every jurisdiction you know, if you're in Mexico or Singapore, or China or New Delhi or whatever, like there will be a local provider. And I think locality here is to a degree pretty important. You want to make sure that you have a good line of communication and good support from folks who play a role like this for you. Um, and uh, I see this being very common um, for both individuals and for businesses. I think for businesses, especially collaboration is really important. I think it's interesting. I think for individuals, there's a certain degree of wanting to be sovereign. And you know, wanted to make sure that, let's say, an Unchained Vault model, the two out of the three, the two of three model, that you have two of those keys. Very important. Um, I think for businesses, some businesses that's very important. You want to make sure you have a majority of keys to your treasury. But for other businesses, it's actually um, exactly what you don't want, 
you don't want to be in a position where your business can somehow abscond with a bunch of funds. You you want to have provable, uh, uh, or you want to have deniability around that, right? It could not have been us. We didn't have access to sufficient keys to make to make that happen. Like that's a great protection for a lot of businesses. So I think collaboration, both for individuals as well as for businesses, is uh, is, is the end state of Bitcoin custody. Um, I, I say this often um, in investor meetings these days, but uh, Unchained has very little churn. Um, I'm, uh, there, we have a great client acquisition and very little churn um, because very few people, once they set up a collaborative custody model like ours, want to ever leave. Um, Coinbase has huge churn. Like We have a lot of folks leaving Coinbase coming to collaborative custody models like ours. Um, and, and in that sense, there's not a next model to graduate to once you're here. Like this is the end of the journey. You've done your learnings. You've figured out that hardware wallets and collaboration and Bitcoin only. Like, okay, now you're at Unchained, and now this is where hopefully you'll stay for quite a while and be a client for a long time as you know the world hyper Bitcoinizes. Yes, I love that. I love that. And you know, it just makes me think about like stress testing, right? Like, are you stress testing your self custody planning? And this is a question that I wanted to ask you, Drew, which I think a lot of people haven't asked. And this is something that I think is crucially important. How do you feel? Because you said something about um, you feel like locality is key. And I personally think that banks, institutional legacy based banks will have to pivot into this model. So I want to know about um, safety deposit boxes. How do you feel about those? And how do you feel about decoy wallets? Because we know every Satoshi is valuable. So how do you feel about someone leaving a hundred thousand Satoshis on a decoy wallet and keeping it in a safety deposit box in like a traditional bank? Let's take these issues, those questions, maybe in the opposite order, if you don't mind. So like, first let's talk about this concept of decoy wallets or like, um, you know, what was it? Emergency pins that unlock a different sub wallet that's hidden. Um, this stuff, um, it strikes me as the kind of thing you reach for when you haven't yet thought of or are unwilling to reach for collaboration as a tool to protect yourself. Um, because what is the context here? The context is someone has physically come to you and they've said, you know, like, give me all your Bitcoin, buddy, you know, and you want to trick them. Somehow they've chosen to attack you, but they don't actually know how much Bitcoin you have. Like this is not, you know, someone is coming to a well-known, you know, Bitcoin OG who everyone knows has got thousands and thousands of coins and they'll open the wall. Sorry, man, all I got is, you know, 0.001 Bitcoin. Sorry, you got the wrong, you know, it's like, it's a strange model where you're going to be attacked, but they're not going to know how much you actually have, or they're going to settle for whatever is in this trick wallet that you've got. I find that a little bit of a dubious security supposition. And then second, um, why don't people worry about this kind of stuff in like the banking world? Like no one worries about like, you know, you make sure you have a fake checking account that you keep like $50 in, you know, it's like, why, why, why would you do that? Because no one comes to you and, and uh, physically, like you might, they might take the cash on your wallet and people do say only keep a little bit of cash on your person. That's a pretty reasonable um, form of self-protection, but no one says create whole separate accounts with small amounts, of, unless you're doing something really strange with your finances. Um, and the reason is no one can just come to you and force you like, to move all that money, it's not a practical thing to do. There are so many social safeguards um, in place in banking software and in other places to prevent, you know, someone raiding your, you know, 10 figures of brokerage savings and suddenly running away with it and, and never being caught again. Um, the fact that you can do that in Bitcoin and you can imagine someone having 10 figures in, in dollars of Bitcoin that being stolen instantly by some attacker like, is one both awesome, that that is possible like to exist, like they, the person can live that way that's amazing but two that it, it's dangerous and it means that you have to find solutions for it now trick wallets and stuff don't strike me as particularly robust solutions for the reasons i've outlined 
things like collaboration are better, right? If you're in a situation where someone attacks you and says, hey, give me all your money, you say, hey, man, I'm in a, I, I use collaborative custody. Like, in order for me to access, like, that level of funds, we're going to have to wake up, like, three people around the planet right now in, like, four different countries, like, with different jurisdictions of police and blah, 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 blah. It's going to take two days. Um, I'm not going to be able to fake all those people out to convince them that there's nothing wrong here. Like, plus, I got emergency panic words or whatever. That I, you know, collaboration is a big part of human security in almost every like aspect of, of physical security, network security, in this case, key management security. Uh, the fantasy that that that's one person can just keep themselves 100% secure through through every possible attack just through cleverness alone and preparation is, I think, a little. It's it's a little heroic. Let's put it that way. And, and you have to put your faith in something, right? Like if people can put their faith in Bitcoin that this protocol is going to work for the next hundred years, you've got to kind of um, put yourself in the position where, um, you know, of course, like you said, not leaving all your eggs in one basket. But if you're looking at keeping Bitcoin or holding Bitcoin for the next decade, I don't see why collaborative custody isn't something that you're at least thinking about, especially if you're a parent or you have loved ones that might rely on you if, God forbid, something happens. Um and I just think that this whole entire conversation has been super profound. And I think that it's really going to help a lot of people that watch this show because I was definitely curious about, um, I saw like decoy wallets, I saw safety deposit boxes and just me being a Bitcoiner, I'm like a safety, de safety deposit box. Like can't like, can't they get like warrants for that if they needed to, or someone could seize it or a bank manager makes a copy of the key. Like there's just so many things that could happen with, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, that's right. I've I, I forgotten that there was a second part to your question, which I didn't answer. So we talked about these decoy wallets and stuff like this. And I think my answer was collaborative custody is probably a better solution. Um, let's talk about physicality and locality and safety deposit boxes and stuff like that. Um, there's a sense in which I think safety deposit boxes are a pretty bad idea if, again, you're using single SIG. If you take, if you take your 24 words, you put them in a safety deposit box. Anybody who gets access to that box, it's got those words. And I don't know about you, but I, the, most banks that I've been to, they're... they're um, it's not Ocean's Eleven over there in the in the safety deposit box room. You know what I mean? It's like it's it's you, you can imagine a sufficiently motivated person being able to get access if they knew what was in there. And let's say there was a lot of money on those twenty four words. It's, this is not a this is not the only protection a, a person should rely upon. But again, what's nice about um, and, and you know there's some mitigating things that you can do. You can decide to take your twenty four words. You can split it up into two pieces, twelve and twelve, and keep them in different safety deposit boxes in different countries. That's a that's a pretty mechanical way to fix it. Um, but if you think about what you're doing there, you're just trying to do multi sig with like with with a worse implementation, right? Like collaboration and collaborative custody multi sig gives you that ability. You don't have one thing anymore that is the secret. You now have multiple secrets, and so you get redundancy. You get to spread them out all over. Um, the world. You can put them in different safety deposit boxes around the country or, or, or world. And I think coming back to that treasure map idea, this is what's also pretty cool, is if someone in one of those locations gets to those 24 words that represents one of the keys in your quorum, they actually haven't learned a lot. It's not like they can take that 24 words and figure out where the other keys are, what those other keys are. They can't even figure out the addresses in your multi-sig wallet because without the treasure map, the, that key is useless. You don't know where to take it. And so there's a lot of um, there's a lot of protections that collaboration and multi-sig brings you that obviate some of these other kinds of way, worries that you might have and just make life simple. So now instead of having to be like, well, I can't trust banks, I can't trust any physical, you can you can have some physical trust in physical locations if you also augment that with logical separations and logical controls like collaborative custody, which is part of the reason to use it. Um, coming back to physical locality and banks. Um, 
I think it would, I think it would be um, wonderful to know whether directly through the thing that we said not to do, which is putting your 24 words of single SIG into a single bank, or indirectly through more complicated structures like collaborative custody. I would love to know today how much Bitcoin banks are quote unquote custodying in this way, like in safety deposit boxes. I bet it's a hell of a lot of Bitcoin. I bet a hell of a lot of Bitcoin devices and seed phrases and stuff are in safety deposit boxes and document storage boxes and other kinds of places all over, all around the world. Um, and that's pretty cool. Um, I think that banks are sadly, and I hope I might hope differently, but I, what I suspect is that they're going to miss this opportunity. Um, lo local banking, I think, used to be a thing right before the internet, before um, you know, telecom got so much larger in, in the last century. But it's like uh, this could be a reason to for local banking to to kind of have a comeback. I think that would be really powerful and very cool. Um, having to go to the bank for for certain operations. Um, that's already what Bitcoiners experience when they go to physical locations where they store their keys, if, if their keys aren't already at home or, or whatever, they have multiple keys. So there's already this, this notion in for, for Bitcoiners of a physical pilgrimage almost to a place to perform the action and it's secure, right? Wouldn't banks who already have bought vaulting spaces and secure buildings and already have alarm systems, and wouldn't they want to guard more than just computers? And hard drives in those banks you know you would think that like getting people to store things they really value and then especially with bitcoin something that they interact with you know it's not just like your your inherited grandma's jewelry that you just leave there and never come back to right this is like this is the reason you're gonna be in the bank every couple of weeks doing some bitcoin stuff checking with your keys doing a transaction and that's a great reason for banks to support the service and to encourage it and to say hey instead of a crappy viewing room with like a shitty share we're going to give you a Faraday cage, you know, like next to the safety deposit box room. We're going to spend the tiny amount of money it would take to build and market this concept. Um, and it's going to make sure all Bitcoiners want to use that bank. Uh, they're obviously not going to do it because that's a crazy idea. Like they're not going to explain the word Faraday cage. It doesn't make any sense. But yet, maybe when one day businesses like Unchained and other Bitcoin businesses become large enough, maybe when we buy those banks, maybe that's what we can do. Exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking. People have asked you a lot of stuff about your Bitcoin astronomy series. And, you know, I tried very diligently not to like make this whole entire episode about that. But there was one question because I've read the series maybe 10 times already. And every time, every time I read it, I always find something different, insightful and new about the series. And um, you talk about blockchains outside of, you know, Bitcoin being used on other planets such as Mars, terraforming, things of that nature. And in your article, you state that faraway colonies will start to trade and value Bitcoin. They'll still consider Bitcoin something that's valuable, even if they use a different type of blockchain. Um, where do you foresee multi-signature custody importance on human expansion into the future? So, like, do you think that multi-sig will be something that people will use even when they go to other planets? That's very cool. Um, so, like, again, one of the things, multi-sig, I think, yeah, the short answer is, yeah, multi-sig is not going anywhere. For all the reasons that I talked about, collaboration is a great way to create redundancy, to create uh, social controls within a financial structure. Um, and as long as human beings are individuals with conflicting, you know, ambitions and goals, uh, there's going to be conflict, there's going to be adversarial behavior, and these kinds of structures are very beneficial. So, like, that's the short answer, yes. But I think there's some coolness to it 
when you think about like the scale right of space and that's in, that whole that whole series just playing with the idea of how cool is it that space is so big and how does that affect you know everyday things in our life like in this case money which by the time that the series kicks off is an everyday thing bitcoin is is money and it's an everyday part of life and that's just how it is we're still on earth in the beginning of the series but that's that's just how it is um so i think the other thing that multi-sig brings you in collaboration brings you geographical separation and redundancy, right? Like if you take, if you're in a multi-sig scenario, but all your keys are in your house and your bedside drawer, are you not really doing multi-sig, right? You're, you're, it's single sig with more steps at this point. Um, so multi-sig allows you to take those keys and to separate them. You know, you, you, you give one to a family member or you keep one at the bank, you keep one in your office, Unchained has one in, in the locations that we use. Um, over time, um, see something that makes me feel very safe um, at Unchained, both as a client and as an operator at Unchained is the fact that, you know, instead of Coinbase having to guard like a few special keys that control all that money and who knows where they are, there's like three of them or five of them, however many keys they have in their multi-sig quorum, Unchained is protected by thousands of keys and they're spread out all across the planet and they're held by many thousands of parties, ourselves and our clients. Um, that's a very cool idea to separate out and distribute, right, that security risk across a larger group of people. In the context of space, you have so much more space, right, to distribute those keys. And I think it's very interesting to imagine um, wanting to keep Bitcoin safe on Earth by spreading keys out to other locations in the in the solar system, right? So um, no one can do a, or it's more challenging to do simultaneous attacks on this wallet if the keys are on, let's say, Pluto, Mars, and and Earth or something like that, just to name some ideas here. So that's kind of a cool idea. Um, I also think that in later parts of the series, I talk about larger scale blockchains. So Bitcoin kind of being a very planet sized blockchain, it turns out that's very, of course, very suitable for Earth as we're experiencing already today, but will turn out not to really be able to reach in some way other planets. I think I, you're right. I do believe that Bitcoin will be useful and usable by anybody almost anywhere, but you won't be able to mine Bitcoin very far from Earth and that will restrict um, how, how useful it can be, and people will create new Bitcoin-like things. Um, like Bitcoin initially, they'll be the size of planet. They'll be like Bitcoin in scale, so they'll also be sort of planetary, and they'll themselves be restricted. But eventually, speculate about larger blockchains um, than than Bitcoin. Um, I call one of them Solcoin, so it'll have like a blockchain of like I don't know 30 days, and this implies something about it'll be able to be mined anywhere in the solar system. And in this sense, it's a very large abstract object, right? So something that's designed to be the size of the solar system. If Bitcoin is designed to be the size of about 10 minutes, 10 light minutes, which of course is the link here, which I skipped over and realizing block time and, and, and size of these systems. Um, but in a, in a system like that, in a solid coin or, or beyond when they get even larger, um, they get more valuable, right? Like Bitcoin is very valuable. We, we conjecture here on earth today because it's, you know, one twenty one millionth of everything, right? Um, but that's only everything on earth. Like uh, eventually, if, if if wealth starts to accumulate in these larger blockchains, um, then most of the solar system's wealth will accumulate there. Um, and the solar system will net have more wealth because it'll be pro producing and using more and more energy. Um, as a result, the, just the energy scales and the, and the economic scales of these larger blockchains are just even larger than what Bitcoin purports to be in the, in the far future of Earth. It's, it's, it's a ast literally astronomically larger. So in that context, you get to the place where you can't afford to keep your keys even on one planet. You need to spread them out, right? Because a planet could always blow up. Planets, you know, come and go on the scale uh, on, on this kind of a time scale. Um, how do you protect, you know, money to last for millions or billions of years um, in the face of potential 
you know, total war between advanced future societies. Like, it seems to me like if there's such a concept as money in those future societies, which I think there will be, um, and adversarial behavior still exists and cryptography still exists, like you're, you're going to be using something like Bitcoin and you're going to be using something like multi-sig, but you're going to be spreading the keys out way further than, you know, New York, LA, right? It's going to be <clears throat> all, all around the solar system. So I think that's a very cool insight. Um, there's one more. I don't know how much further I should take. I'll take. I'll say. I'll say one more thing because I know that you you like this stuff, and then maybe we'll we'll leave at the topic. But I think finally, in the context of um, of collaboration, like there's a third part in the series which talks about aliens and their usage of blockchain and Bitcoin and whatever. And I think there's a cool conceit there that um, the alien coins could be the most valuable of all like even more valuable than anything human beings have ever made because they could be the secret. If we could earn, for example, alien coins, we could spend them in alien markets to, I don't know, learn alien things, whatever the alien things are that we would want to learn. Presumably they're more advanced than we are and those are very valuable things to earn. To learn. Um, how do we earn their coin? We would earn their coin by mining. How would we mine? We'd be in a pool. How would we get paid out by that pool? Um, surely we would pick multi-sig. No one person would be in charge of receiving the super valuable alien coin um, and being able to spend it on whatever the hell they wanted. We would ensure that some coalition of keys received this coin so that politically it could be used, we could ensure that it's used in the right ways. So I just think like, the scale of these speculations leads to lots of fun opportunities for the concept of multi-sig to kind of continue propping up over and over again. Yeah, that was an awesome answer. And I also feel like that's, that's something that can create a whole new series for inspiring writers to talk about. So I just think that that is just super fascinating. I just love that answer. Um, Drew, you know, I really, really appreciated this Bitcoin conversation. It's been awesome. Um, before you leave, can you give people your social media handles and any future endeavors about Unchained that you want the world to know about? Yeah, sure. Um, and it's been an awesome pleasure talking with you. I, I can tell that you, like me, love thinking about Bitcoin in the future and space and all these fun ideas. It's really animating and it's a cool part of being in this industry. So thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. Um, in terms of social media stuff, I am on Twitter. Just my, It's my first and last name, concatenated, Drew Bansel. Um, I also blog chiefly on the Unchained um, blog. So if you check out unchained.com slash blog, there's a bunch of articles there. Some of them are mine. I hope to release some more ones coming up this year. There's a lot of stuff I've been working and thinking on in half ways that I have been unable to get out for months for want of um, you know running a company and, and working through a bear market over here. But you know, at the same time, this is the best time to be creative. So um, hopefully I can get something out this year um, beyond just space, talking about some other new and exciting areas. Um, thanks again for the opportunity, Dadu. Yes, and thank you likewise. Um, thank you for being on the Bitcoin Source. Have a good one.